I got to admit, when I came to this passage in 1 Timothy, it's one of those passages where I was reminded why sometimes people don't like to teach through whole books of the Bible. (laughs) Sometimes it's easier to teach topical passages because then you don't have to talk about verses that are uh, tough or uncomfortable. When you go through a book of the Bible, if you skip it, people in your church will notice and ask why. And not only that, you'll miss part of God's heart when, when we skip around and pick and choose what we read in God's Bible. We become the editors of God's Word, and we never want to be that. He is the author. And so today, we, we continue on in Paul's letter to Timothy. As you all know, a big part of Paul's heart and God's heart in this letter is to, to say to Timothy, hey, I've left you in Ephesus to lead the church there. And here are my plans for the church. Here's what I want things to look like. In the first chapter, you remember, he told Timothy, guard against false teachers. That's a top priority in the church. When false teachers come, stand against them with the true gospel. And last week at the beginning of chapter 2, you remember, he started talking about the order of importance of things in the church. And he said, first of all, devote yourself to prayer. The church, above all, should be a praying people. In the second half of this chapter, he continues on. There's a link with that prayer theme, but he goes on to talk about the unique roles of men and women in God's church. And all of a sudden now, some of you know why I said what I said about this is is a passage that, that we might be tempted to skip, but it's in God's Word, and we want to teach it. And I pray we teach it faithfully and humbly and according to what the Spirit put in His Word. So forgive me at any point I don't do that. (laughs) I'm going to aim to. But as I thought about it, I thought about bowling. How many of you guys like bowling? Okay. We've had a couple of men's nights out where we've gone bowling and we had a good turnout. And I thought about how when we bowl, there's two gutters right, that you want to avoid. You want to stay on the wood, which I do less often than I'd like to. We just talked to a guy a couple weeks ago that talked about bowling a perfect game, and I'm like, really? And then he talked to people that bowl multiple perfect games. (laughs) Anybody in here ever bowled a perfect game? (laughs) Yeah, join the club. I don't know how they do that. Maybe on Wii we get close, but not even on the Wii have I bowled a perfect game. But you got these gutters, and you want to stay on the wood and out of the gutters. With this topic of men and women and their roles in the church, I was thinking there's a couple gutters we want to stay out of. One is the gutter that has this mindset. And I dare say nobody would be bold enough to say this in church, especially to a woman, but there may be some some men who think this way. This is one gutter to stay out of. It's that men are more valuable than women in the body of Christ And uh, women have little or no significant ministry impact that they can make. That's a gutter we need to stay out of, okay? I believe there's a gutter on the other side that we need to avoid as well. And that is that men and women can all take whatever role they like in God's body. Whatever they feel like, I'm going to take that role. I think that's a gutter we need to avoid as well. In the middle, on the wood where we're going for the pins, I see a couple ideas. One is that we are all one in Christ. 
men and women. Galatians 3.28, Paul said it this way, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are equal in our value in Christ Jesus. Also in the middle, when we read the commands and the promises and the spiritual gifts that are given in the New Testament, we believe those are for all men and women. But, I also believe that in God's sovereign design, He has created varying roles for men and women in the home and in the church. That's the wood we're aiming to stay on as we bowl this morning, if you will. He starts off with the men. And I can't help but notice, he gives one verse to the men and then like six or seven to the women. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 3. I don't know if that's because God knows men and women. Like, men are like, all right, let's just, give me, give me the info and I, I'll get out of here. Get, give it to me straight. I don't know. But he starts with the men, and I think that's important because I would dare say many have taught this passage and uh, been quick to, to read that verse and then move on into the women. But I want to spend some time on the men as well as the women, because this is a passage to both. Verse 8 says, Therefore, I want the men everywhere. And many believe what he's talking about when he says everywhere is wherever the church meets for its gatherings. You know, in that day, churches were scattered in different homes throughout Ephesus. Wherever the church meets for its gathering, I want men to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Lifting up hands was a common posture of prayer in the early church and in, and in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go in the Roman catacombs where the early Christians sometimes had to meet to avoid persecution, you'd see pictures of Christians praying with their hands raised in the air. It's kind of a physical way of saying, God, I, I revere you, and if the hands are open, it's kind of a physical picture of saying, I need what you have to offer me. Hands raised. I don't believe Paul's saying this is the only way you can pray. You read through the Old Testament, there's people bowing. There's sometimes people laying on the floor, prostrate. There's all kinds of positions we can pray in. But when he says lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing, many believe hands are symbolic for the way we live. We do things with our hands, right? It's a primary part of our body that we do things throughout the week. And what he's saying is, hey, it's nice that you lift your hands in prayer on Sunday, but what are you doing with those hands? What are you doing with your life during the week? He says, do it without anger or disputing. He's challenging men to say, hey, are you just putting on a good show on Sunday or does your life throughout the week line up with that? Or is your life throughout the week filled with anger? Is your life filled with unrighteous anger towards your family, your co-workers, other people? Or disputing? Do you get jazzed up on arguing with people just for the sake of arguing and stirring the pot? I'm not saying we never have lively conversations. Those are good and they sharpen us. But if, if you really enjoy putting barbs into other people by arguing... You might want to take a look at your, at your heart, man. Jeremy Taylor said this, Anger is a perfect alienation of the mind from prayer. 
Have you ever noticed that? If you're really angry about something or somebody, and it's an unrighteous kind of anger, there is a righteous anger. You can take that to God when you're righteous, righteously angry about wrongdoing. But I'm talking about selfish, unrighteous anger. It's hard to pray when you're in that state. Some of you have heard the story early on in our marriage. Me and Carolyn were having an argument, and I saw one thing, and she saw another thing, and, and it was starting to escalate, and I wanted to sound all spiritual as a young husband, so I said, I'm going to go in the other room and pray. And I'll never forget when I walked in that other room, I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was like God was speaking to me in my heart. And he said, Scott, I gave you that wife. I told you to love her as Christ loves the church. You go out there and make things right with her, and then we'll talk. And that's what Peter said in his book. He said, that can hinder your prayer, husbands, if you don't live in consideration of your wives. He said, live in consideration of your wives that your prayers may not be hindered. So if you're finding that your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, you want to look around at your relationships. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Think about that. We all know in Christ there's nothing we can do to separate us from being His son or daughter, but there are things we can do that separate us from intimate fellowship with Him. A psalm says, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I need to confess that sin. You remember Jesus said, if you go to worship and you remember somebody has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go make things right with that person. Remember Jesus says, you don't forgive those who trespass against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. You're not going to experience the joy and peace of forgiveness if you're holding on to a grudge. So he's saying, men, don't just raise physical holy hands on Sunday. Live a life that reflects that posture throughout the week and keep that line of communication open with God. I've got to admit, when I, when I thought about this, it, it's challenging uh, as, a, as a husband and father how to think about my life during the week. I, I hear a lot of talk about why do kids leave the church when they get in college. And I believe where a lot of the conversation goes is legitimate. They get into college and some of them aren't prepared to defend their faith apologetically. And they hear from a professor that speaks from another point of view and they start to question and they're not prepared so they begin to, to walk away. That's one valid reason. We need to teach our kids why they believe what they believe. But I couldn't help but wondering as I read this, could some kids be leaving the faith when they leave home because of what he's talking about here? They got dads at home who put on a great show on Sunday, but all throughout the week they watch dad live a whole different way, speak a whole different way, live a whole different life in front of them. The way he treats his wife, the way he treats his kids. Kids aren't dumb. They know when something really has transformed your life. And when it's just a show. And kids don't want to be part of a show. So I read this and I take it as a challenge. Like, God, keep me growing. Help me confess the ways where I fall short at this during the week. And help me to reflect you to my family. And if you don't have a family, to my co-workers. To my neighbors. What do they see? One I, I'm convicted about a couple of weeks ago. What do people see on the road? I was convicted about it because I was uh, 
we were on Highway 89 one day, and I, I was kind of in a hurry, and I zipped past someone beside me. I, I wasn't necessarily speeding, but I was probably taking off faster than I could, and I got over in front of him where it squeezed into one, and I saw it was Pastor Rosberg. <laughs> Next time I saw him, he said, I wondered who that was, and I said, that was me. I'm like, man, I need to work on my driving. I wasn't being the safest driver that morning. Uh, but, man, let's think about, how, does, does my life during the week match my upraised hand or my worship on Sunday? I think, too, the, the reason he starts with men, and you'll see this in many passages where, where Paul talks about the role of women. He also talks about the role of men. You know, when, when men get it right, I think it makes the whole system a lot easier to operate. When men get it wrong, it makes it all very challenging. Warren Wiersbe said it's important that men use God's order as a tool, not a weapon. And I know that some of you in here may have had God's order used on you as a weapon, and on behalf of men, I apologize to you for that. God's order was never meant to be used as a weapon. That should break our hearts when we see that. And we should speak against that when we see that as fellow men. When we see a man using God's order as a weapon, it must be spoken against. It's to be used as a tool. So men, let's look inside and say, does my life throughout the week line up with my Sunday worship? Or is it characterized by anger and a love for disputing? Let's start there. Now he shifts to the women. And I want to preface this just by saying something. As I share this, this not all of you know our home life. So I just want to share a couple things. So you know, you know God's word, but I want you to know something about the messenger it's coming through. This is coming through a husband that yesterday cooked sausage gravy and biscuits for the family. Because I love my family. I love sausage gravy and biscuits. It's coming from a husband who unloaded the dishwasher twice yesterday and, and regularly helps around the house because my dad taught me how to do that. And I don't share that with you to say, look at me. I say that to say, you can believe in different roles in the church without being a pompous idiot. Okay? <laughs> you can still be a servant in your home and believe in God's roles in the church. And I, I just want you to know that about me before we go on. Just a little bit of where I, I'm coming from. I love my family, and I believe a big part of my leadership in my family is serving them and living in consideration of my wife, knowing her and how I can serve her. Little context. Now we go to verse 9. He says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. What's, what's he getting at here? We know a couple things about Ephesus, okay, where, where Paul was writing to Timothy. Ephesus was the center of Diana worship. And part of Diana worship involved temple prostitutes. 
Temple prostitutes who often flaunted the same exact styles that Paul talked about here to, to draw, draw in their clients. Elaborate hairstyles. Some translations say braided hair. Gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And so that's why those particulars were a particular concern in the Ephesian church. What he's saying to them, I believe, is look around at the culture and when you, what you see as seductive or, or sinful or for the purpose of drawing attention to yourself, don't, don't wear that. Some of the specifics may vary today. But here's, let, let, let me get into some of the Greek of this passage because it's interesting. When he says, I also want the women to dress modestly, the word for dress, some translations say adorn is cosmeo. It's related to the word that you may have heard described the, the world, cosmos. What it really means is an orderly system. So when he says that, he's saying arrange yourself, put yourself in order, make yourself ready appropriately to join God's people as they worship. He's not saying you have to just roll out of bed and come into church. Okay, It's okay to get ready. And, and be beautiful. God made you to be beautiful. He's just saying do it in a way that's appropriate as you join God's people as they worship. Ralph Earl said it this way, don't dress in a way so as to draw attention to yourself. At worst, this is what the prostitutes did in Ephesus. At best, it shows pride and self-centeredness. Towner talked about going to an upper middle class church in Dallas. A lot of times when we think about modesty, we think about the, the sexual connotations of that word, but there's another one. That it's, it's that sense of not dressing in a way so as to make myself look better than the people around me or feel superior to them. He describes what happened to him. He said, I am reminded of a visit to a large upper middle class church in Dallas. It could have been any large city or suburb. He said, when I entered the sanctuary, the first thing that struck me was the glitter of jewelry, the expensive clothing, and the fashionable hairstyles. The craning necks as people sized one another up gave the impression that, for many, the purpose of gathering together that Sunday morning was to display economic status. A newcomer of modest economic means could not help but feel a sense of exclusion. See what he's getting at there? It wasn't necessarily just what was being worn, but it was the craning of the necks. And you could see the comparisons going on so that some people may walk into that church and not feel welcome. We must never carry ourselves in a way in our church that would make anyone that walks through those doors feel unwelcome. James talked about that, right? Don't show favoritism to the rich over the poor. Operate in a way that anyone that walks through that door would feel welcome. I think what it comes down to is a heart question, as so many things with Jesus do. It's, it's for each one to ask in their heart, why am I wearing what I'm wearing? Why am I carrying myself the way I do? Have I come to honor God or have I come to bring honor to myself? He goes on to what I think is in some ways even the bigger point. He said, I want the women to dress modestly. 
with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. He's saying it's not wrong to, to arrange yourself in a beautiful fashion. But what's the primary way you define beauty in your life? Because the external appearance is a cheap substitute for what really matters. You look beautiful externally, but there's a deeper beauty that comes as you do good works. That word good works comes up 12 times in the pastoral epistles. It's like it's a big deal to Paul, not just for women, but for everyone in the church. He wants the church to be filled with beautiful good works. I'm going to read a card from the family y'all blessed at this school at the end. It's one example of your beautiful work in the community. And I tell you, when I started dating Carolyn, the first time I met her, I was struck by her external beauty. We were playing volleyball, and we ended up on the same team. And we started talking. But I'll tell you what, over the next six months in our college group, she grew more and more beautiful to me. Not, not because her appearance changed, but because I saw her good works. One of them was our, our church was part of a, a small group ministry to a, a home where people with disabilities lived. And I saw her. She went along on that team week after week. And I saw the way she loved those people in that home and took God's word and, and ministered to them. And throughout the years, there have been many more examples as she served God's church. That beauty is a deep beauty. It cannot be taken away. And Paul says, don't settle for the, the externals. Go, go deeper. I'll close this section by quoting John MacArthur. He said, as I, as I carry myself throughout my life, as I carry myself at our worship gatherings, is it to reveal a humble heart devoted to worshiping God? Or is it to call attention to myself and flaunt my wealth and beauty? Or worse, to attempt to allure men sexually? A woman who focuses on worshiping God will consider carefully how she's dressed because her heart will dictate her wardrobe and appearance. I think those are important questions. I think it's also important to ask, how do I define beauty? Have I settled for merely the world's fleeting definition or have I gone deeper into God's definition of beauty? He goes on to talk about roles in the church. He says in verse 11, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now you can really see why this would be a passage that would be easy to say, hey, on to chapter 3. <laughs> Anybody else want to come up here, trade me spots? <laughs> no hands? <laughs> I want to set a little context here. Okay, most Jewish rabbis would refuse to teach women at this time. Some even likened it to throwing pearls to pigs. Okay, I just want you to know the culture this is written in. Even for the Greeks, William Barclay wrote this, The respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. 
She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appeared on the street alone. She never went to any public assembly. There was one rabbi's opinion expressed in the Jerusalem Talmud. He said it would be better for the words of the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than they should be entrusted to a woman. Wow. Better to burn that Bible than teach it to a lady. That's the, the, the awful context that Jesus came into. And as you remember Jesus' ministry, a couple incidents will stand out. The, the first person that he revealed his Messiahship to was a Samaritan woman at a well that many others did not even want to talk to at all. He taught women, if you look at Luke chapter 10. When he was resurrected from the dead, he, his first appearance was to a woman. Women were involved in that prayer meeting in Acts as the church was just about to begin. In 1 Peter 3, Peter calls women fellow heirs of the grace of God. And as we read the fruits of the Spirit and the promises and commands to the church in the New Testament, they're for all. They're for men and women. So there's a, a good revolution going on in the Jesus movement. We read it in Galatians 3.28. They're one in Christ. So what about this? A woman should learn in quietness. At the end it says she must be quiet. Well, it's important to know that the Greek word does not mean not a peep. It doesn't mean silence. That's a different Greek word that Paul could use. It means a, a quiet, ordered manner. Okay? It doesn't mean if you have a woman speak in this room that we have captain escort them out. <laughs> That's not what it means. It's talking about a quiet demeanor. But what about that S word? Full submission. What about that word? It means to line up under. Okay, to rank under. Army terms, uh, a private submits to a colonel. But, as you know, Kelly, just because there's different ranks in the army, it doesn't mean that the private is somehow less valuable as a person than the colonel, correct? It's just a different role to play. Imagine the chaos if everybody in your branch of the military just said, hey, in this battle, I'm going to do whatever I feel like. You put... 300 people out there and say, we're all just going to do whatever we each individually feel like. What do you got? You got a mess. You got chaos. God knows that. God is a God of order. So whether you look at the home or the church or government, even the wonderful universe that He's made, you see order all over it. So, so what about this submission to rank under, to, to line up under? This is another one of those words that is hard because of abuse in the past. There are men who have taken this word and used it as a weapon. And again, I apologize. I'm sorry that's been the case for some of you. Let me talk to you about the heart of God behind it. Vine, who 
who wrote Vine's Dictionary, said this word submission, it's not a surrender of mind and conscience or the abandonment of the duty of private judgment. With all submission is simply a warning against the usurpation, the, the taking of authority. Let me tell you a couple of things. First Corinthians 11, Paul talks about women praying and, and prophesying in the church. Did you know that? He talks about them, them doing that. So what's he talking about here when he says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission? I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. On the one hand, we have to say this is revolutionary that she's able to be there becoming a disciple in light of the current culture. But what about this, I don't permit her to teach? It's important that we know the tense of that word and the tense of exercising authority. They're both in the present tense in the Greek. You say, so what? What that means is talking about ongoing teaching and exercising authority in an ongoing manner. You remember we started out by saying he's talking about when the church is gathered officially. So what I believe he's talking about, especially in light of the fact that in our very next chapter, he's going to talk about the qualifications of an elder, one of which is he must be the husband of but one wife. He's talking about a woman is not permitted to an ongoing teaching ministry in the main gathering of the church, especially in the role of elder. That is reserved for men. That's what I believe he's saying. I do believe outside of that, there are myriads of options for women to use their gifts. Sometimes women do have the gift of shepherding. Sometimes they do have the gift of teaching. We see even in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, there was a young preacher named Apollos who didn't totally get it. It says he only knew stuff up to John the Baptist. And it says Priscilla and Aquila, a man and a woman, together pulled him aside and they taught this preacher more fully the ways of God. She had a powerful impact in the body of Christ by teaching this preacher, hey, you missed some stuff. I've had ladies in this church, including my wife, and I'm thankful for it. Men too. There are times I miss things up here. <laughs> and, and they send input. And, and I love that, whether it's from a man or a woman, because we can all learn from each other, okay? He talks elsewhere in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy about the importance of older women teaching younger women. So important. And women teaching children, which we will talk about more at the end of this passage. But here's another example. Carolyn, we were, we were talking through this a lot this week, as we do with a lot of my sermons. I'm thankful for those conversations. We were talking like she was saying, how would you feel about uh, attending a Beth Moore conference with me, for example? As Carolyn's been blessed by the ministry of Beth Moore. I said, I would love that, you know, if you ever want me to. Why do I feel that's something different from what I said? It's not an ongoing teaching role, especially in the role of elder in the local church in the main gathering. All that to say there are countless places where women can have a powerful impact in teaching, even if you believe it's not in the role of elder. 
I was thinking this week of some of the ways Carolyn has taught me in our marriage. She's helped me when I'm preaching. Sometimes I tend to get lost in some of the details. I like to spin around in those, and she's constantly asking me, all right, pull back a little bit, and what's the big picture? What does this tell us about our relationship with God? <laughs> and it's always a revelation. I'm like, oh, yeah, let, wow, looks different from up here. It's good to do those details, but let's pull out. She helps me with that. She's helped me learn a lot about spiritual warfare and the importance of, of fighting that spiritual battle. Many of our difficulties in this life are not merely human. There's a spiritual battle that requires prayer and the, the armor. She's taught me a lot about prayer. She's also taught me a lot about discernment. I tend to be the one that's a little more gullible with people in our relationship, like I the rose-colored glasses. And Every now and again, you, you meet a person that you'd, you need to look deeper on before you get taken advantage of, and usually Carolyn spots it first. You still love the person, but you be careful. She, she, she has that discernment about her. She's taught me a lot of things, and I just share that as one example. Men, we can learn a lot from the women in our lives, if we'll but listen. Now, a couple of things as we close this section. We all know there are churches that have women elders. Okay, They, they differ from where we as a church stand. And I want to challenge us as a church, when we encounter a church like that, don't automatically assume that they have a low view of Scripture or God's Word. These are some tough passages. Okay, we all know God's Word is eternal, but we all also know that each part of God's Word was spoken into a specific culture at a specific time. One extreme example, when you read Leviticus... How many of you go out and buy a sheep and go looking for the local temple? Anybody? No, because you know that was written to in the ancient Near East, the nation of Israel, for that time. There are some who have women elders who in general have a high view of Scripture, but they look at some of the cultural issues going on in Ephesus here. One of which was many of the priestesses of Diana, if not all, were women. And in that cult, the women basically told the men how it goes. They, they ruled over the men. They had all the power. And so some of those who have women elders say, well, the reason Paul told no women teachers in Ephesus is because that cult had messed up that culture and he didn't want that to carry over. But today that cult's not an issue, so a woman teaching is not so much of an offense as it was back then. Don't assume they have a low view of Scripture. Just know this is a difficult passage with a lot of cultural issues tied to it. At the same time, I would go to say there are some in this world who do have a low view of Scripture, and they're ready to change it to their liking whenever they wish. You've got to discern who you're talking to, but don't automatically assume that about every church who feels differently. On the other hand... I would say if you feel differently about this, if you believe that women can be elders, number one, I love you. And number two, don't assume that those of us who believe elder is reserved for men have a low view of women. Are there some in that camp that do have a low view of women? 
I guarantee you there are. And they need to repent. Because as I read in Galatians 3.28, we are all equal in Christ. But I think in general, if both sides could approach each other with a little more grace, we'd get a lot further down the road as a body of Christ. One of the reasons I believe it still applies that a woman should not take that ongoing teaching in the role of elders, the following verse. Verse 13, Paul goes back to creation, which seems to me to be a lot deeper than a cultural issue. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. God established the roles from the beginning. And it wasn't a result of the fall that he established those roles. This was before the fall. So if you thought the husband being the head of the home and the wife being the helpmate was a bad thing because of the fall, you need to get your chronology. This happened before the fall. Then he goes on to talk about the fall. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now we've got to be careful here. Some well-meaning teachers, and maybe some who weren't so well-meaning, look at this passage and say, see, women are dumb. Women are gullible. More so than men, and that's why they shouldn't have the role of an elder or an ongoing teaching in the church. I say, eh. He doesn't say that. He says that Eve was deceived, and what I believe he's getting at it's not that all women are gullible. As I shared in our marriage, Carolyn's stronger in the area of discernment than I am. What he's saying is, they flipped the roles. Eve took the lead, and Adam followed, and look at the mess that ensued. God puts roles in the family, in the church, for a purpose, for order. Now to verse 15. God saved the toughest for last in this chapter. Several of the commentators I read said this is one of, if not the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament to interpret. So walk with me. I'm walking humbly, prayerfully. He says in verse 15, but women will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith, Love and holiness with propriety. Okay, let's deal with that first part. (laughs) Women will be saved through childbearing. There are numerous ways that different scholars have understood this passage. That's why I walk humbly. I'll share what I believe it is, but I share it humbly. But, But first, let me share a couple of views. Some believe that what that means is even though pain in childbearing was a result of the fall, God is giving some comfort to women that, hey, I'll, I'll keep you physically safe as you go through that process. Now, that's not true for every woman that goes through that process 100%, but the majority of women who go through the childbearing process go through it safely. That's what some believe that means. Others believe he's talking about saved through Mary's childbearing of Jesus. He's just talked about Adam and Eve, and you remember God made them a promise that a seed of the woman would 
conquer the serpent's head. And so some look at this and say it's talking about Jesus being born to Mary. Others teach that what he's talking about is not spiritual salvation, but salvation from futility, insignificance in ministry. What he's saying is, hey, okay, if women can't be elders, how do we make a mark in this world? How do we make a difference? And the answer would be through bearing children and raising them as mom continues in faith, in love, in holiness, and with propriety. Now, each of these views has its strengths and its weaknesses. I lean towards the latter because it says women plural. And it speaks future tense, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. And when I believe that, I believe it means a whole lot more than just pushing a baby out. Okay, because you all know of women who have pushed babies out and then not raised them in the ways of the Lord. It's, I believe it includes that godly nurturing of a child, a disciple. You all have heard the, the phrase, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Even young Timothy, who Paul's writing to, Paul writes him in 2 Timothy and he says, I know the faith that you learned from your mother and grandmother lives in you. So you talk about an impact here at the church in Ephesus. started with Timothy's grandmother. Now, is this the only way women can make an impact? No. No, we already shared about Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos more fully, right? We all know women in the church, many of you in this room who have valuable, important ministries. But it is a way, and it is an important way. And I think our society has demeaned this way. I'll be honest, I think our society has made this way look much smaller than it really is in God's eyes. I think our society has sometimes brought us to a point where we maybe believe that preaching a sermon is more important than raising a godly child. And I'm not so sure that's the case. When we stand before God one day, I think He's going to say, hey, level that out. When you look at the amount of abortion in this country, very few of them are a result of rape or incest. Many of them in surveys are because it's not the time to have a child. That tells me something about our culture and what it has done to the idea of raising children. It's turned it into something that is menial and inconvenient when God says no. No. This is one of the most important things you can ever do. Someone asked me at our preaching meeting, how do you feel about work, women working outside the home? My personal response is, that's a decision every family needs to make before the Lord. They're free to make that, and there are many godly women that I know that are working outside the home in many different roles. 
I know in our home right now, Carolyn has been part-time working at the church, but there may be a season where she takes off with some more of her interior decorating skills. She loves helping family and friends with, with decorating, and she's already doing some graphic work, and that may expand at different seasons in our children's life, and I'm supportive as God leads whichever way He leads. But I also know that our society has sometimes told us that that work outside the home is more important than our kids. I believe God would speak against that. It's not more important than raising kids. Raising kids is vitally important in God's plan as we continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. In fact, when... Paul starts to talk about the, the men and the elders in the next chapter. One of their qualifications is they've got to manage their family well. It's important to God. It's valuable. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. A couple closing thoughts. One, I think it's good as we wrestle through these to say, God, as I build my worldview have I stepped out in faith and believed your plan over the world's plan? Because I think in a lot of ways the world's plan wants us to believe that men and women can be the same in every role and in every way, and it's even gone to a physical level now. I think when we try so hard to be the same in all our roles, we miss something beautiful. It's only as we each reflect God's image in the unique roles He's given us that together we create this awesome thing God wants. It's an awesome picture of who He is. It's only as women embrace their woman, womanhood and men embrace their manhood and come together that we become all we can be. We try to mess with God's order. We miss out on His beautiful picture. So am I listening to God's plan or am I listening to the world's plan? The second thing I want to close with is something Carolyn shared with me that I thought was powerful she said this passage doesn't make me uncomfortable and I said why and she said because throughout my life starting as a child and into my teen years I've received so much teaching about my worth in God who I am in Jesus Christ she said I rest in that so different roles don't make me feel like insecure or like i got to clamor for something else because, listen, none of us should be finding our value in what we do anyways. We find our value in who we are in Christ Jesus. And then we trust Him to lead His church according to His will. Amen?